Confirmation, Reflections on Flannery O'Connor's Short Stories, Parker's Back, and The Artificial Nigger. Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 3. The Artificial Nigger is a fairly early short story of Flannery O'Connor's. Some of her friends tried to convince her to change its name uh, for obvious reasons, and, uh, and she resisted that. She said some years after she had written it that it was her favorite story and that she was pretty convinced that it would be the best thing she had ever written. She read it many times before arriving at that conclusion. When she, in that same letter where she says that, she said, I've read it over and over and over again, and uh, I enjoy it more every time, and uh, I hardly remember that I'm the one that wrote it. <laughs> so let's, let's turn to uh, The Artificial Nigger. It begins this way. Mr. Head awakened to discover the room was full of moonlight. After a second, he saw half the moon five feet away in his shaving mirror, paused as if it were waiting for his permission to enter. It rolled forward and cast a dignifying light on everything, but the face on the moon was a grave one. It gazed across the room and out the window where it floated over the horse stall and appeared to contemplate itself with the look of a young man who sees his old age before him. Uh, this is a story about uh, an event which takes place at roughly the time the, the sacrament of confirmation would be taking place between a tutor and a student, really a grandfather and a grandson. Uh, but it comes at a moment when it's time for the grandfather to take the grandson out into the larger world and teach him what the world is all about. And uh, we're going to watch that unfold, but the first thing we learn about this teacher is his name is Mr. Head. Now, Flannery O'Connor is not interested in uh, kind of goofy stuff that happens in the backwoods of East Tennessee or North Georgia. She's interested in what's happening in Western civilization in the middle of the 20th century. So this story is not about some country bumpkin. This story is about us all. But I think it's also a story specifically about intellectuals. Mr. Head is the one who has taken the responsibility for tutoring this uh, young man in the, in the ways of the world. And in our culture, that's a responsibility that we pretty much leave to the, uh, to the educational system and uh, at, at the upper end of that system to the, to the intellectual. The, the moonlight is coming in. But notice how, uh, how diffidently it is coming in. This is a pre-Copernican system. Mr. Head is still the center of the universe, and the celestial bodies revolve around him and come in via his shaving mirror and pause, seeking his permission before entering. You see, this is the pre-Copernican cosmos with Mr. Head at the center. Mr. Head could have said to the moon, he could have advised the moon on things. He could have said to the moon that age was a choice blessing and that only with years does a man enter into that calm understanding of life that makes him a suitable guide for the young. This, at least, had been his own experience. So he does oversleep, and the boy gets up before him, but that's, we'll get to that. Anyway, 
it says before he falls back to sleep, his eyes were alert but quiet. And in the miraculous moonlight, they had a look of composure and of ancient wisdom, as if they belonged to one of the great guides of men. He might have been Virgil summoned in the middle of the night to go to Dante. Or better, Raphael awakened by a blast of God's light to fly to the side of Tobias. Now this is both uh, biting irony in light of what's to come, but it's not altogether that. This is a man who could in fact have been that. Had he uh, the resources, uh, had he the temperament, that there was nothing preventing him from being that kind of a person. Uh, but he's living in a world that, has, that knows nothing about that kind of depth of thing. So it's the moment at which a Virgil is needed or a Raphael is needed, someone to come into the situation where people are lost. Dante is lost. Tobit is blind. Tobias doesn't know his way, etc. So one needs the guide to come into a situation of lostness and uh, lead the lost out of, out of their lostness. And uh, Mr. Head regards himself as that guide. Nelson was hunched over on his side, his knees under his chin and his heels under his bottom in a fetal position. So Nelson, the young boy, is sleeping, uh, not yet born, really. Not yet born. Now, we find that he was born in the city where they're going to make their visit, and that was the only time he had been there. And Mr. Head hasn't been there for 15 years, and he's only been there three times himself. No, twice before. This will be his third time. But since he was born there, Nelson insists that this is his second trip there, uh, so that he's not a novice after all. Uh, so the city is where uh, the birth took place, and uh, now one is going back to, uh, uh, to go through the other births. You see, it's very much like infant baptism and, and the adult sacrament. Uh, now one goes back to the place for another version of that birth. But anyway, he's in the fetal position. His new suit and hat were in the boxes that they'd been sent in. These were on the floor at the foot of the pallet where he could get his hands on them as soon as he woke up. The slop jar out of the shadow and made snow white in the moonlight, appeared to stand guard over him like a small personal angel. So the slop jar is, uh, it takes on a, in, in, something about this moonlight, you see. The slop jar suddenly is standing there glowing like an angel. This is what the moonlight can do, make the slop jar look snow white and angelic. Mr. Head laid back down, feeling entirely confident that he could carry out the moral mission of the coming day. Uh, Nelson not, is not quite sure his grandfather is going to be able to uh, negotiate this trip, and he says to him, how do you know you're going to be able to find your way? And Mr. Head says, have you ever seen me lost? Nelson certainly had not, but he was a child who was never satisfied until he had given an impudent answer and he replied, it's nowhere around here to get lost at. So we've never really put it to the test yet, have we? See? In this little uh, familiar routine, 
the lostness is simply not going to manifest. We don't know about that yet. The day is going to come, Mr. Head prophesied, when you'll find you ain't as smart as you think you are. Now, the teacher and the student in this situation are at each other's throat. Both of them are overly afraid that the other one might make him look foolish. Neither one of them are prepared to learn something they don't already know. So it reminded me of, the, of, of a kind of generation gap that form in a culture where the tradition has gone sour. The elders, unconsciously aware of how little they have to pass on to the young beyond the few cliched prejudices which saved their generation from despair, are overly sensitive to any insinuation by the young that the elders' opinions don't merit careful attention. Untouched by anything remotely potent enough to temper their hormone-driven cockiness, the young are too arrogant to accept anything from their elders, except those same cliched prejudices that provide their arrogance with further verification. So the nature of the situation is the only thing that can pass are the cliched prejudices. He has a new suit and new hat because this is, this, this is the journey. to one, one has to become a new man. You see, the Pauline idea of the, new, of the new Adam, the new man. So the suit and the new hat are there. The new hat is uh, a little bit too big because uh, they expected his head to grow. Now, his tutor is named Mr. Head. Uh, so there's some expectation that there'll be some growth along the way. So they bought the hat a little bit bigger, just in case. Nelson had a fiercely expressionless face, very much the same shape as the old man's. They were grandfather and grandson, but they looked enough alike to be brothers, and brothers not too far apart in age, which again partly explains their rivalry. Uh, there is no sense of one being fundamentally equipped to tutor the other one. You may not like it a bit, Mr. Head said. It'll be full of niggers. So here begins the, the essence of the tutorial. The essence of the tutorial has to do with the fundamental distinction upon which all the rest of the distinction rests. Uh, the, the sacrificial cult feeds on distinctions, must carefully guard the distinctions, and the most important distinction will be the distinction between us and them. And this is how the sacrificial cult works, which is to draw the, the initiate into the appreciation of these, of these uh, important distinctions that our culture are, is based on. So you may not like it there in the city, it'll be full of nigger. The boy made a face as if he could handle a nigger. All right, Mr. Head said. You ain't ever seen a nigger. You ain't ever seen a nigger, Mr. Head repeated. There hasn't been a nigger in this county since we run that one out 12 years ago, and that was before you were born. He looked at the boy as if he were daring him to say he had ever seen a negro. How you know I never seen a nigger when I lived there before, Nelson asked. I probably saw a lot of niggers. If you seen one, you didn't know what he was, Mr. Head said, completely exasperated. A six-month-old child don't know a nigger from anybody else. 
You see, that's the problem. Now we're we're not we're not born with this stuff. It is a cultural product. Now we're born with all kinds of emotional things and aggressions and this and that and the other. But no other creature performs the brutalities that we perform, and none of those brutalities can be explained by reference to the instinctual system. We are not born with it. It is culturally imprinted. So a six-month-old child don't know a nigger from anybody else. I reckon I'll know a nigger if I see one. Now from fit. So we've already set up the We've already defined the nature of this journey. So they go to wait for the train. They, they live out in the country, and he, Mr. Head's arranged with the train to stop to pick them up, and it's still dark, and they're waiting for the train as though waiting for an apparition. And finally, the train comes very slowly around the bend. Uh, Mr. Head was still not certain it would stop, and he felt it would make an even bigger idiot of him if it went by slowly. Now, isn't that a tremendous, isn't that a tremendous insight into human psychology? <laughs> Both he and Nelson, however, were prepared to ignore the train if it passed them. <laughs> now, this goes to the, to I think the fundamental problem here, and that is the fear of looking foolish. I remember so well as a child, first learning of this thing about how does the Christian must be willing to be a fool for Christ. I, I remember as a child, I was fascinated by that idea, what that meant. I, I, I toyed with it in a way. It, was a, it just intrigued me. But anyway, the fear of looking foolish is, goes right to the heart of self-imposed human slavery. Does it not? It, it, it's, it's the source of more enslavement than probably anything else, the fear of looking foolish. And it's related to... Sebastian Moore's idea of sin as seeing my life through other people's eyes, of course. Buber speaks of this. Uh, Buber talks about the difference between being and seeming. And he says that's really, if you analyze our human quandary, that's really it, because uh, we are so preoccupied with each other and how we might be seen by others that we live a life of seeming. And he says the life of seeming is a lie regardless of how closely the appearance and the reality uh, are to, uh, how closely they resemble each other. In fact, the appearance, how I seem, and what I really am can be identical. But if my life is fundamentally one of, of seeming, it's a lie, even though it's not uh, fraudulent in the technical sense, even though what I am is really what I seem to be. I can be living a life of seeming that's a lie because it's not a life of being. Both the intellectual and, and uh, the untutored one bound up in the same fear, the fear of looking foolish. Okay, they're on the train. People have begun to wake up slowly. They got on it before light, and uh, the train's going along, and they're sitting there. Suddenly, Mr. Head's serene expression changed. His mouth almost closed, and a light, fierce and cautious both, came into his eyes. Now, this light comes into his eyes 
we'll see why in a second. But this is, I think it's important to remember that there still is something we might call Luciferian light. There is a light that comes in. It is light. It's fierce and cautious both. And it comes into his eyes. He was looking down the length of the car. Without turning, he caught Nelson by the arm and pulled him forward. Look, he said. A huge, coffee-colored man was walking slowly forward. Dressed fit to kill, you know, with a tie-tack and a walking cane. And with two young uh, black women behind him. And he walks by. He's coffee-colored. I think that might be an... Everybody on the train is waking up. There may be some... She may be playing around with that. After he passed, Mr. Head's hand released its grip on Nelson. What was that? Yeah. A man, the boy said, and gave him an indignant look as if he were tired of having his intelligence insulted. What kind of man? Mr. Head persisted, his voice expressionless. A fat man, Nelson said. <laughs> he was beginning to feel that he had better be cautious. You don't know what kind, Mr. Head said in a final tone. An old man, the boy said. That was a nigger, Mr. Head said and sat back. Nelson jumped up on the seat and stood looking backward to the end of the car, but the Negro had gone. That's his first nigger, Mr. Head said to the man across the aisle. You see, this is, it's, the, it's the time for the sacrament of confirmation, and what he is being confirmed into is the sacrificial cult. That's his first nigger like a notch on your gun or a mark on the wall. That's his first one. Now notice, there had been no blacks in his county, so he hadn't, he hadn't seen any. But he had been, the mythology had been applied in thick doses. And so he was prepared uh, to receive this imprint that he was now receiving. Nelson felt that the Negro had deliberately walked down the aisle in order to make a fool of him. See? Back to that. And he hated him with a fierce, raw, fresh hate. And also, he understood now why his grandfather disliked them. See, it all falls into place like that. All the preparation has been laid down, and this one thing which involves him looking foolish. You didn't know the difference, did you? And boy, oh boy, he'll never not know the difference from now on. You see? This is one of those things. He'll make sure he never forgets the difference now. They start into the city, and we're reminded of where we're coming because Mr. Head reads the signs as they pass coming into the city. The Dixie Chemical Corporation, Southern Made Flour, Dixie Doors, Southern Bell Cotton Products, etc., etc. They get out, and they start to walk around. Uh... But Mr. Head really doesn't know his way around the city anymore. Okay. Mr. Head turned and looked behind him at the station they had left, a putty-colored terminal with a concrete dome on top. He thought that if he could keep the dome always in sight, he could be better able to get back in the afternoon to catch the train again. So his reference point is the concrete dome in my little poem about the quarry being turned into a concrete plant. It's this kind of 
same, I think it's the same play on the word concrete. A medieval person would have kept their eye on the church spire and understood that that's where they would have to go uh, to, to get home. See? But things have come a, a long way from that. And now we have a concrete dome. And he has to co constantly keep that in mind. And that's the train that goes back to where he's been already. A tutor must have a center of gravity, a, an orientation, and that's the concrete dome. Uh, no, no sense of the mystery and, uh, and uh, the religious imagination and all of that. This is the concrete dome. And then uh, the tutor must have his sources uh, for his wisdom. Uh, we would like to know, for instance, does Mr. Head consult uh, the book of Isaiah? Uh, or does uh, does Mr. Head consult Plato? I mean, we, we, sh we should know. Does, where does this? Is, does it, does, is there? A, is he passing something on? Paul said, "I pass on to you what was passed on to me." So here we have it. They stop at a weighing machine and put their penny <laughs> in, and they find out how much they weigh and their fortune at the same time. Mr. Head's ticket said, "You weigh 120 pounds. You are upright and brave, and all your friends admire you." He put the ticket in his pocket, surprised that the machine should have gotten his character correct, but his weight wrong. <laughs> Nelson's ticket said, you weigh 98 pounds, you have a great destiny ahead of you, but beware of dark women. Nelson did not know any women, and he weighed only 68 pounds, but Mr. Head pointed out that the machine had probably printed the number upside down, meaning the nine for the six. So as they stopped to... To, to get their further orientations, further sort of uh, assistance in making this journey, they stop at what amounts to a fortune cookie and, and proceed on the basis of that kind of uh, reassurance. And Mr. Head is still appalled by the fact that, uh, uh, that Nelson is, is fascinated by the city even though by Mr. Head's account of the situation, there are far too many niggers here. But for some reason, uh, that's not what sunk in to Nelson. He's fascinated by all this going on in this city. So Mr. Head has to take the situation in hand. He takes Nelson over to a sewer drain and tells him to get down and stick his nose down in that. And he does. Mr. Head explained the sewer system how the entire city was underlined with it, how it contained all the drainage and was full of rats, and how a man could slide into it and be sucked along down endless black, pitch black tunnels. Any minute, any man in the city might be sucked into the sewer and never heard from again. He described it so well that Nelson was for some seconds shaken. He connected the sewer passages with the entrance to hell and understood for the first time how the world was put together in its lower part. This is, I think, this is uh, Flannery O'Connor doing a little send-up of Freudian psychology. <laughs> but I think in a larger sense, it's also the, the intellectual, you see. Augustine said, you, you don't know and then believe. You believe and then you know. And, of course, the intellectual d d often doesn't get it that way. And so trying to get there from knowing... Uh, is constantly frustrated and exasperated and finally cynical. 
and uh, and and then comes to resent those that that haven't achieved that level of cynicism about the situation. So the intellectual would be the one who would say, "Wipe that grin off your face and come over here and smell the sewer." <laughs> and the Christian would be the one who would say, "Wipe that scowl off your face and come over here and look at the slop jar in the moonlight." <laughs> <laughs> and it's in a way it's a struggle between those two forces well so they wander around and they see more and more uh, black and suddenly they realize they're in the black section of town and at that moment Mr. Head realizes that he cannot anymore locate the concrete dome he can't find it he doesn't know where he is and they also discover that one or the other of them left their sack lunch on the on the train and it's it's time to eat and they are hungry and thirsty and lost in the black section of town now that's sort of where dante begins the divine comedy hungry and thirsty and lost in the dark wood nelson says to mr head first you lost the sack and then you lost the way now you have to understand that Flannery O'Connor is, 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 is imbued with such sacramental consciousness that she has never written a paragraph that did not have some sacramental feature to it. And when she says you lost the sack, she's talking, I think, about the Eucharist. You lost the meal. And then you lost the way. And that's her estimation of the situation. First you lost the sack, and then you lost the way. In the John 9 uh, Gospel, Jesus said, I am the way. Kodos in, in Greek. I am the path, the, the way. And uh, it's a great assessment of the situation. Why don't you ask one of these niggers the way, Nelson said. You got us lost. This is where you were born, Mr. Head said. Why don't you ask them yourself if you want to? So here they are, you see, lost and not really wanting to admit it and certainly not wanting to be instructed in the way by niggers how could that be you see that would be how could that be in one of her letters Flannery O'Connor said what I had in mind to suggest with the artificial nigger was the redemptive quality of the Negro's suffering for us all that there's a thing that Howard Thurman said about how ast astounding it was that the slave uh, redeemed the religion that had been profaned in his midst by his master. Uh, so if you've lost the way, if you've lost, first you lost the sack and now you lost the way, why don't you ask one of the victims of this cultural enterprise? Because uh, in all likelihood, they'll know more about the Christian tradition than the victimizers. Nelson was afraid of the colored men and didn't want to be laughed at, there it is again, by the colored children. Up ahead he saw a large colored woman leaning in a doorway that opened onto the sidewalk. Nelson stopped. He felt his breath drawn up by the woman's dark eyes. How do you get back to town, he said in a voice that didn't sound like his own. After a minute, in a rich, 
low tone that made Nelson feel as if a cool spray had been turned on him. She said, you in town now. To me, that's the most powerful line in this story. I just think that is amazing. You're in town now. <laughs> what can you say about that? Isn't that it? How, can, how do you get out of here? How do you get to there? You know? Where, where do we, how do we get from here to there? Or whatever it is, you know? But you're in town now. Oh, my, 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 my. Now, that's what confirmation ought to be about. You see? That's what confirmation ought to be about, is to hear that. And he receives from her. Everybody has to experience some kind of ontological shock in order for the, uh, the real transformation to start taking place. He receives from, and we, can, we have our choice. More, well, not our choice. We don't have our choice, but we can... We can Behave so that it's more likely we'll get a gentle one than a harsh, uh, better, better, better a harsh one than none at all. So he gets he, he's gentle ontological shock in 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 the face of this amazing woman who says in rich low tones, "You in town now, sugar pie?" She later on she calls him sugar pie. You in town now? In his discussion of being and seeming, Buber says to yield to seeming is man's essential cowardice. To resist it is his essential courage. So uh, what, both Mr. Head and, and Nelson are encased in a shell of seeming, of fear-ridden seeming. And until that shell is, is breached, nothing's going to really happen. So we wait the moment when uh, that a shell does not, no longer uh, prevents reality from entering. So here it is for Nelson. He understood that she was making fun of him, but he was too paralyzed even to scowl. He stood drinking in every detail of her. So this is a situation where ordinarily the reflex, the defensive reflex, driven by the fear that I will be made a fool of, would have, would have come into play. But in the presence of this awesome person, it didn't even click in. So he's drinking in her every detail. His eyes traveled up from her great knees to her forehead and then made a triangular path from the glistening sweat on her neck down and across her tremendous bosom and over her bare arm back to where her fingers lay hidden in her hair. He suddenly wanted her to reach down and pick him up and draw him against her, and then he wanted to feel her breath on his face. He wanted to look down and down into her eyes while she held him tighter and tighter. He had never had such feelings before. He felt as if he were reeling down through a pitch-black tunnel. Now, he had been instructed about pitch-black tunnels in the sewer instruction. Flannery O'Connor said later uh, in a letter to a friend, uh, you might be right that Nelson's reaction is too pronounced, but I meant for her in an almost physical way to suggest the mystery of existence to him. I felt that such a black mountain of maternity would give him the required shock to start those black forms moving up from his unconscious. The, the shell that, that uh, 
is driven by the fear that I will look foolish, is interrelated to the to the barrier between the conscious and unconscious. So when one of them is, is breached, the other one is. And these forms, these black forms, start coming up. He's connected. This is the mystery of the transference. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to get into that, really, but this is really what this is all about, to be in that moment, and suddenly all of that unlived life is, is suddenly coming up in the presence of this mystery that he had never let into his, into, really into his existence before. Nelson would have collapsed at her feet if Mr. Head had not pulled him roughly away. They walk on a little way. They're still tired, hungry, thirsty. Uh, Nelson sits down to rest and falls, slumps over and falls asleep. And Mr. Head decides that he's going to give him uh, some instruction that he will not forget. So he goes and hides in a little alley, sits on a trash can there, waits for 20 minutes, and then he makes a loud noise to see what will happen when Nelson wakes up and can't find his grandfather. Nelson, meanwhile, is sleeping. The boy was dozing fitfully, half conscious of vague noises and black forms moving up from some dark part of him into the light. His face worked in his sleep, and he had pulled his knees up under his chin. So there we are again, fetal position again. Well, he wakes up to the loud noise, can't see his grandfather, just tears off down the street, collides into a woman carrying groceries, knocks her down and groceries all over the street, and she begins to yell for the police, a black woman. A number of other black women come around, and there's a little circle of black women now standing around Nelson and yelling about how his daddy is going to pay for it and where's the police and so on and so forth. Mr. Head walks very slowly up, very cautiously up, and stands at some distance. And as soon as Nelson sees Mr. Head, he lunges at him and grabs him, grabs his legs. And the whole crowd of women now come and confront Mr. Head. So what's happened is that the situation has suddenly changed, and now Mr. Head, it's the sacrificial configuration with Mr. Head in the, in the victim's role. And that's really the place where push comes to shove. That's the place where one, you see what somebody's made of. We must all pray that we never find ourselves there, lest we do just what he did lead us not into temptation. You see, Peter was in that at, when he's standing out at the, warming himself by the, in the, by the charcoal fire. He was in that situation suddenly. They're around him. Mr. Head stared ahead, Mr. Head stared straight ahead at the women who were massed in their fury like a solid wall to block his escape. This is not my boy, he said. i never seen him before. Now, so much for his, his ability to lead this child into any kind of confirmation. And the women dropped back, staring at him in, with horror as if they were so repulsed by a man who would deny his own image and likeness that they could not bear to lay hands on him. Mr. Head walked on through a space they silently cleared and left Nelson behind. Ahead of him, he saw nothing but a hollow tunnel that had once been the street. He has replicated Peter's denial, but remember, Peter's denial really led to the resurrection, if, if I may say so. Uh, Peter's denial led to a very profound sense of 
contrition on Peter's part, uh, which uh, set up the experiences uh, of the resurrection, Mr. Head began to feel the depth of his denial. Now, he's now having his ontological shock. He walked on. He saw nothing they were passing, but he perceived that they had lost the car track. There was no dome to be seen anywhere, and the afternoon was advancing. So this is the, this is the measure of the progression here. There are no streetcar tracks, no dome, and it's getting late. Now these are, the, these are what would precede a, a possible breakthrough. They come to a suburban area with mansions and big lawns and so on. And a fat man with two bulldogs is walking up. I remember Mr. Head had been never want to look foolish in front of anybody. I mean, that's the name of the game. Nelson overcame that in the presence of the black woman. And here, Mr. Head overcomes it. When he sees this man coming toward them, Mr. Head waves both his arms like someone shipwrecked on a deserted island. I'm lost, he calls. I'm lost and can't find my way, and me and this boy have got to catch this train, and I can't find the station. Oh, God, I'm lost. Oh, help me, God, I'm lost. To resist seeming, Buber says, is a person's essential courage. So this is a courageous thing he does. To say I'm lost when I'm lost is a courageous thing. Mr. Head turned slowly. He felt he knew now that what time would be like without seasons, what heat would be like without light, what man would be like without salvation. He didn't care if he ever made the train, and if it had not been for what suddenly caught his attention, like crying out of the gathering, like a cry out of the gathering dust, he might have forgotten there was a station to go to. He had walked. Uh, he had not walked 500 yards down the road when he saw within reach of him the plaster figure of a Negro sitting bent over a low yellow brick fence that curved around a wide lawn. The Negro was about Nelson's size, and he was pitched forward at an unsteady angle because the putty that held him to the wall had cracked. One of his eyes was entirely white, and he held a piece of brown watermelon. An artificial nigger, Mr. Head said, Senator O'Connor, again, one of her letters, said, uh, there is nothing that screams out the tragedy of the South like what my uncle calls nigger statuary. And what she does with it is that she turns it into the crucified Christ. Notice this, though. It would have simply been there, familiar enough, one could walk by it, maybe... One could walk by it a thousand times without really noticing it, except for the fact that now it was pitched out there right in front of you. Under these circumstances, the dome is gone, the tracks are gone, it's getting late, one has said out loud, I'm lost, and boom, there it is. Look at this, pitched forward at an unsteady angle because the putty that held him to the wall had cracked. Now, the source of Mr. Head's orientation had been 
the putty-colored terminal with the concrete dome on top. Now, there's no reason to call that terminal putty-colored, except to make this connection. That other little superficial way of organizing one's existence had cracked open, and suddenly the crucified one in its contemporary manifestation leapt out of the wall, leapt off the wall, came into life, down off the, the wall where the cross or crucifix tends to be stuck, and confronts one right there. And he's holding a brown watermelon. Now, Flannery O'Connor is constantly referring to the Eucharist, and she used watermelon in, in A Good Man's Hard to Find. When, Mrs., when the grandmother said that when she was young, Edgar Atkins Tea Garden used to bring her watermelons on Saturday and set them on the porch and, write, and put his initials in them, E-A-T. And, and then a little nigger boy come up, and, one time a little nigger boy came up and stole one because he thought it meant to eat, which it did, and has to do with that passage in Ezekiel and Book of Revelations and all the rest of it. So, it's a, so a brown watermelon is like a, it's like a watermelon and a loaf of bread at the same time. So, so here's the crucified one falling out there with this Eucharistic offering. You hungry? You thirsty? You tired? You lost? An artificial nigger, Nelson repeated in Mr. Head's exact tone. The two of them stood there with their necks forward at almost the same angle and their shoulders curved in almost exactly the same way and their hands trembling identically in their pockets. Mr. Head looked like an ancient child, and Nelson like a miniature old man. Because in the presence of the crucified one, all of that, everything, the distinction is dissolved. They stood gazing at the artificial Negro as if they were faced with some great mystery, some monument to another's victory that brought them together in their common defeat. They could both feel it dissolving the differences like an action of mercy. Now, that's what the sacrament does. Dissolves the differences like an action of mercy. The sacrificial cult reinforces the differences, the distinctions, and primarily the distinction between uh, this righteous community and that expelled one or expelled subculture. But this sacramental experience dissolves them. Mr. Head had never known before what mercy felt like because he had been too good to deserve any. They got on the train, they got back home, they jumped off the train just as the moon restored to its full splendor, sprang from a cloud and flooded the clearing with light. Now we have the moonlight doing to the whole situation what it had done to the slop shop. The last of the story is a little bit like General Lovenheim's speech in Babette's Feast. Mr. Head stood very still and felt the action of mercy touch him again, but this time he knew that there were no words in the world that could name it. He understood that it grew out of agony, which is not denied to any man and which is given in strange ways to children. He understood it was all a man could carry into death to give his maker, and he suddenly burned with shame that he had so little of it to take with him. He stood appalled, judging himself with the thoroughness of God, 
while the action of mercy covered his pride like a flame and consumed it. He had never thought himself a great sinner before, but he saw now that his true depravity had been hidden from, from him, lest it cause him despair. He realized that he was forgiven for sins from the beginning of time, when he had conceived his own, in his own heart the sin of Adam, until the present when he had denied poor Nelson. He saw that no sin was too monstrous for him to claim as his own, and since God loved in proportion as he forgave, he felt ready at that instant to enter paradise. So that's the moonlight on the slop jar. Turns it angelic. I wanted to read um, this other poem, which uh, is entitled uh, Jake. It's about, a, it's about an encounter that I had uh, over some period of time when I was a small child with a black man that lived nearby. I have to be out of town next week. And what I want to do is show, I want to show the BBC documentary of Howard Thurman's life. And that's an appropriate thing, I think, to show after we've talked about the problem with the sacrament of confirmation, because as far as I'm concerned, Howard Thurman was a master at uh, confirming. And I think you can get that from, from seeing this BBC uh, documentary. There's a fair amount of... Uh, uh, interview with him in it. When uh, when I visited with him, what he essentially said to me was, "You in town now?" You see what I'm saying? That's what he said. Finally, that's what it came down to. You in town now? And I had written this poem that I want to read to you before um, my. Uh, important visits with, with Howard Thurman, but I, I took the poem to him uh, later and uh, because it was a, it, it seemed like an early, almost an early anticipation of uh, what he was going to do for me as an adult. So I'd like to read it to you, not for its literary merit, but for the other thing. Uh, in gratitude for Jake and for Howard Thurman and for other people who, despite the cultural situation, have managed to become people who knew about confirmation and could dispense it. He left Niggertown like it was kingdom come to make a living doing what needed done. Before he knocked on doors, he took his hat in those enormous hands, then turned and spat tobacco hard at yet another gutter. He said, hello, Miss Dixie, my grandmother. Jake, from behind the old screen door, it's the yard needs mowing and a chore or two after that. Cut the honeysuckle vine. Lose your temper on it, Jake, and if there's time, trim the hedge and keep this child outdoors. He loves to watch while I sweep and mop the floor. And so I'd spend an occasional summer day being Jake's best friend, who'd overheard hearsay, yet knew that he was really brown, not black, and good and kind and had a Negro knack for fixing everything that needed fixed. I never knew I loved him. I was six. But hope he knew, though he's dead these many years, what it meant when he took out those shears to cut the hedge and gave me a man to see and let me run to fetch the ice and tea. Sit next to him, and while he'd slowly quench his measure of his worth, his thirst, I'd inch a little closer. It's hot, Jake, huh? I'd say. He'd mumble, God made it that way. 
It's up to us to love the way it's made. He'll give us a little tea and ice and shade. And when the tea was gone, I'd grab the rake, helping out again my old friend Jake. I guess I was too busy to notice when months passed, Jake didn't come around again. Grandmother Dixie O'Connor went away and died. And some of those tears I finally cried were for the quiet old occasional friend who took Miss Dixie's place now and then. He had even let me wear his smelly hat. And though he rarely talked, I remember that he'd pat me on the head and almost smile as to say, not now, I'll tell you after a while. One summer he came to call me by my name. I leapt alive the way the preachers claim you're supposed to do when, despite the fall, God's big enough to love you after all. I, I share that out of gratitude uh, and as a way, and, and uh, in, in a way as a, because I won't be here next week, uh, I wanted to, in a sense, introduce Howard Thurman and uh, that's the best introduction that I could think of, that he was that kind of person. We all stand in need of confirmation or a, what we call a booster shot. You get your first fundamental confirmation, but then you need these little boosters every once in a while. If, you, if you're in need of a, either of original confirmation or a booster, now come and take a look at this, uh, this documentary on, on his life. This concludes Confirmation. Reflections on Flannery O'Connor's short stories, Parker's Back, and The Artificial Nigger. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.